0: Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. You're listening to Seek Up, the yoga inspiration show. This episode is a Dharma talk that I gave to my students here in Miami. And I talk about the intersection between neuroscience and yoga, which is something I'm really, really interested in. And we dive into how to cultivate good habit patterns and how to not entirely remove, but how to lessen bad habit patterns. So I hope you leave with a little bit of inspiration to live a better life. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to this yoga inspiration show. I want us to take a few moments to center the mind before we get into the talk discussion and Q&A session for today. So if you take a few moments and close your eyes and just a few moments of mindfulness to check in with the quality of your breath, the quality of your mind, the quality of your emotions, and just notice what is. Having those few moments of mindfulness creates a certain receptivity as the mind turns inward just for a moment. You break the circuit of external focus, and it's in that space of inner listening that the most spiritual elements of the practice really start to happen. So now allow yourself a long, deep breath in. And as you exhale, let's open the eyes. Good. You have probably heard the story before about two wolves. These two wolves story comes from a Native American myth about two wolves that live inside of the heart. And when asked which one will grow, the wolf of love or the wolf of hate, the answer is whichever one you choose to take care of, whichever one you choose to nurture. I want to dive into what that actually means a little bit today from the paradigm and perspective of spiritual practice. First, to understand what's actually happening, it's really useful to get a sense of the emotional reality and how the emotional reality is triggered and uh, into action and mobilization throughout your day. So if we take a look at those two wolves from the Native American story, the wolf of hate, we could say, is aligned with our systems of survival, the systems of what we could call the fight, flight, or freeze response. And when this system is activated, this is essentially a warning signal in the body. And the warning signal in the body has an impact on your emotional state, an impact on your mental state, and an impact on your level of stress and numerous other things that you you might find or interact with in your life. When that wolf of hate, you could say, is simulated and you decide to act within that paradigm of fight, flight, or freeze, and your actions come from within that paradigm, the natural occurrence is that you'll have more actions that will come from that framework of thinking. Unfortunately, it's very tempting to let your emotions dictate your actions. So when you You know, find yourself irritated by something when you find the emotional system of fight, flight, or freeze triggered by some life circumstance. It's very difficult to have the mental discipline to turn away from that and remain calm, to not necessarily answer the triggers. Right. So, some people are poised or, for whatever reason, have a very kind of hair trigger fight, flight, or freeze response. They can really hone in on potential dangers and potential difficulties, whether it's a fly buzzing around the room, or whether it's, you know, something new that they've never seen before, or whether it's the classic example of a misperception. Um, Now, if you have a really hair-triggered nervous system, you come into the yoga practice it can feel overwhelming. You might feel like, I, I've, I don't know what to do with all of my emotions. How can you move away from that wolf of hate and then put your energy and direction towards the wolf of love? We have these two different proclivities within our emotional system in terms of our biology. How can we actually make that turn around? How can we actually turn away from all of those repetitive patterns that are built into our body and our brain and craft a foundation, an action in love. Well, if we think about what's actually hardwired into our minds and hardwired into our neurobiology, I feel like there's a lot of discussion these days about the foundation of kind of negativity bias, the foundation of working with stress or what stress happens, you know, does to the body. But there's not as much emphasis on the reality that the very that there are equally strong systems built into our bodies and our brains that are rooted towards connection that are evolved within the human species specifically to cultivate empathy and compassion and this is something that's really in our our favor you could say so first of all i'm not a scientist but i'm really interested in the intersection of what can be studied and verified with kind of rational scientific means and what we can feel and kind of get a sense of from the yoga practice. So what many yoga practitioners, maybe including you who are joining now, are, have experienced is that as you keep practicing, you become more empathetic. You become more kind, more forgiving towards yourself and maybe also towards others. And what this does is it strengthens some patterns inside of our brains and patterns inside of our bodies that are really a very highly evolved state of human being. And the wolf of love we could also call the state of calm and connect. And when we're in a state of calm and connect, then we have different neurons that fire in the brain. Um, One of those neurons is called mirror neurons. And mirror neurons mean that we have the capacity to tune into someone whom we identify with And while we're watching them, say, cut wood or walk through the street, or when we watch them get hurt, then our neurons, called mirror neurons, fire so that we actually experience the very same thing that our friend is experiencing. We actually go through the same process. And this is one of the ways that yoga helps us actually evolve, helps us water or you know, water the pathway of love or take care of the wolf of love and nurture that just a little bit more. Another thing to think about is that in terms of our evolution, if you think about the evolution of, you know, the species, not only human species, but all species, there's a very particular type of brain cell that mammals uh, are sort of highly evolved, sorry, not highly evolved mammals, but highly evolved primates have, and these are called spindle cells in the neurons. And the spindle cells or a very particular type of cell that allows human beings and primates, like chimpanzees and orangutans, to engage in complex social behavior. And an example of that that we see that, that's, that's shown very clearly in primates is when one of the members of a tribe of primates is suffering, then the others will go and console that individual. And that's something that you know, we do as human beings as well. So one of the evolutionary marks of the human species, rather than what we normally think of as just all of the mental accomplishments, is actually the capacity for empathy. So what I'd like to present to you today is the idea that the whole practice of yoga is designed to encourage the path of evolution and the path of the raising of consciousness. And the way that this happens is not only to increase intellect, but intellect, of course, is there, but instead actually to increase a path of true compassion and true empathy. So how do we do that? What's the relationship between the physical poses of yoga and the cultivation of empathy and the sort of deprogramming or unwiring of those hot zones of the fight, flight, or freeze response? Well, let's take a look at it from, again, a physiological perspective. Now, everybody practicing yoga knows one thing for sure, is that yoga is really demanding. It stretches your muscles and stretches your body and even stretches your mind, you could say. Now, no matter how well you do the asanas or the yoga poses, meaning no matter how deep your forward bend is or how deep your back bend is, no matter what state your asana is in... After the end of each yoga practice, you leave with a little bit of peace and a little bit of inspiration for life, a little bit of happiness. And one of the ways that that happens is that when your muscles are relaxed and the muscles kind of lengthen and soften and the muscles are relaxed, it sends a signal to your brain that it doesn't need to be on high alert anymore. If the opposite is true, if the muscles get tense and There's a lot of tightness and pain in the body. It sends a signal to the brain that maybe things aren't going so well down here in the realm of the body. So this type of regulation of the emotions is what's often referred to as bottom-up regulation, when the state of your body impacts the state of your brain. And when you do your yoga practice by stretching your muscles out, you're using the tool of the body to communicate to your brain that it can relax. Another tool that yoga employs to encourage this bottom-up regulation is the tool of the breath, so that when you move into deep and resonant breathing, then this also encourages the state of your mind to relax. When we have this unique combination of stretching the muscles and deepening your breath, then there's a change in the resting state of your mind and your brain to move away from repetitive negative thoughts and into a more consciously creative, more highly evolved state of empathy and compassion. And it's not only about others, but it's also about yourself. You become happier when you practice yoga. You feel better in your own skin. And then there's this feeling of of just ease and flow, that seems to just emanate outward from you. Those of you who are practicing regularly, it's almost like you get hooked on that good feeling that comes from your yoga practice, so that you can't always pinpoint why, but you know you feel so much better after you practice. And when that feeling of better calls to you and beckons to you, then you'll know that you're committed to the practice of yoga. So this is something I just want to encourage each of you to look for at the end of each practice. One of the things that can happen for many yoga students is that sometimes we tend to think that success in yoga is equivalent to physical attainment of the yoga poses. But I want you to really reconceptualize your concept of what yoga is. We are interested in the spiritual journey of yoga to use the tool of asana as a means to train the mind, as a means to build new patterns of thinking, new patterns of embodiment. We can think of the tool of asana in a couple of different ways. First and foremost, that the tool of asana is pure, is, you know, is working in that sense of encouraging a state of relaxation bringing up that bottom up regulation where when the breath is deep and the body is relaxed and the body feels good and the brain relaxes and the more good you feel the more the brain relaxes and it's this kind of cycle that helps everything dial down so it's the first thing that you can think about what is what am i doing when i'm practicing asana the second thing that i'd like you to think about when you're considering what's uh, happening in the world of asana and how, how is asana actually, you know, the yoga poses, how is that actually a spiritual practice? Well, consciousness, you know, is a question that is not necessarily answered by any one person or any discipline. But if you can think about the connection between mind and body, would you just think about that for a moment. this connection between mind and body. As alive as your mind is, you know, as many thoughts as the mind may have moment to moment, well, the body can be full of feeling in the same way. So in the tool of asana, we're trying to unite mind and body to such a degree so that you can bring consciousness, the light of knowledge, into every cell of your body so that you can bring truth and light and what we could call liberation into a feeling of wholeness that sits in the entire, in the realm of the entire body. So if you have a hard time some days and think, wow, I'm really, I'm judging myself today because my yoga poses are not looking so good because I can't put my leg behind my head or my handstand isn't on point. I want you to remember that the tool and the journey of asana is not about perfecting the physical form. Instead, The tool and the journey of asana is about inner awakening, and we do that by first and foremost, as I mentioned before, tuning into that state of calm where the muscles relax and the body relaxes, the breath deepens and opens, communicating a sense of safety and security to the brain. And then second, uniting mind and body to such a degree so that your consciousness infuses every cell of the body, and you can be alive in every corner of the body. Buddhist teacher Tara Brock, she says that the unfelt body is coordinated or linked with the unlived life. So if there are parts of your body that you can't feel, that you're disembodied from, parts of your body that feel like they've been relegated to, you know, thrown away and put, put in the closet, you can't feel that those parts of your body are correlated to a, a portion of your life which you said no to in some way, an unlived portion of your life, and that you're here on the spiritual path of yoga to reclaim that little bit of your life, your livelihood, your essence, your being by encouraging a sense of whole being, a sense of embodiment. Now, the third thing that asana does, which is really cool, is it gives you something to focus on. And when you have a convergent point of focus. I I wanna tell you what convergent focus means. So when you converge, right, so to converge means to kind of home, like come in around and coalesce around the center or a specific point. So when many different roads converge, it's the meeting point that's called the convergence. So a convergent focal point means a place where your mind, focuses in on a very specific way. And the asana, the tool of asana, the tool of the yoga poses, is designed to give you a convergent focal point, something that's so intense and requires 100% of your effort that you'll lose yourself in that effort. And in Sanskrit, we call this the cultivation of the eka tattva state, the state of single-pointed concentration. So through the tool of asana, you're practicing mental discipline. You're practicing single-pointed concentrations that you can simultaneously lose yourself in the moment while at the same time practicing the skill of focus, staying focused on the task at hand and not letting your mind waver. Without this mental discipline, then that inner work of the the spiritual practice gets very, very difficult. So remember that this is the purpose of asana. This is the purpose of asana. Contained within all of that are some of the health benefits that you'll often read about in the yoga practice. You know that there are all these health benefits of Having done and worked on the yoga practice, your digestive system functions better, your immune system functions better. If you add in breathing, the cardiovascular system functions better. The hormonal system can come into balance. Your, you know, the the, the neurobiology of your brain is in a, you know, a a very coherent and harmonious state. This is still, still somehow a side effect, you could say, of this deeper spiritual journey of the yoga asana that the yoga asana is there to take your mind into an elevated vibration, sort of a higher state of consciousness. That's the real you know, inner work of the yoga practice. Along those lines, you might think that you're not very good at asana. And I really want to tell you that it doesn't matter. You can you know, make whatever shapes you want to make with your body, whether they're looking like they could be publicized on a yoga magazine or whether or not not, it really doesn't matter because nobody can judge the state of your yoga but you. You're the only one who knows your inner experience. Not by asana can you judge yoga. Not by external form can you judge yoga. Only from your inner experience can you taste the state of yoga. Then once you have moved into an experience of more peace, more harmony, more happiness in your life, the way that I feel like you can really see if your yoga practice is working is if in the mirror of your life you go. You see reflected back at you, the wolf of love or the wolf of hate. Remember that story at the beginning of this talk where we have these two different patterns and proclivities that are contained in the animal being of our bodies. We have the potential to work the pattern of hate and we have the potential to work the pattern of love or calm and connect versus the fight, flight, or freeze response. If the resting state of your life You experience most of the time in that calm and connect space. And if most of your interactions are pleasurable, if the mirror of your life shines back to you a state of peace and harmony, and if that state has been improving over the trajectory of your yoga practice, well, then yoga is working. You'll never get it perfect, you know, and that's okay. Not asana not breathing, and certainly not that mirror of life. There will always be some points of irritation. That wolf of hate, you could say, never really disappears because it's built as a potentiality into the hardware of the body. And this is important because what the human mind wants to do is build an absolute dichotomy that says that, Whenever we're in fight, flight, or freeze, that's bad, and we should always be in the common connect space. I never want to go into the wolf of hate. I only want to go into the wolf of love. Well, the life is not, you know, as clearly dichotomous as that. Whenever we operate in search for dualities and in search for absolute truths in the realm of dualities, we run the risk of increasing polarization within our own minds. So instead, I want you to think about this, that that potential of fight, flight, or freeze is there. When it's appropriate, when it's appropriate, those neurological systems will kick in for really, really good measure. However, when it's not appropriate and that wolf of hate has arisen... Then it's a danger. It's a danger to yourself, to your state of happiness, and it's, it will potentially harm those around you. A classic example of this notion of activating a pattern which is not useful is the very definition of ignorance and delusion. Some people say that the whole journey of yoga is to remove the seed of ignorance so that you can see reality clearly. And when you remove the seed of ignorance, then we will always act as is appropriate moment to moment. But if we're unable to clearly discern what reality is, our actions will always be inappropriate, out of touch, and sometimes overblown. So if we're talking about a classic example of misidentification, where we produce an inappropriate response rooted in the seed of ignorance, called in Sanskrit avidya, We have this classic example given in traditional yoga commentaries of someone walking down a dimly lit pathway and seeing a coil, you know, a coil, so a little coil, and immediately jumping back and recoiling from the image of a coil and having the full fight, flight, or freeze response jump up inside of their body, become triggered in the body as though they're about to run away from a snake. They've seen the image of a coil. And then very quickly, those systems immediately trigger and then the body recoils and jumps away. And then upon closer glance, it becomes evident that it was in fact not a snake, but just a coil of rope that presented no damage. And this is the way that Sometimes we misidentify uh, a source of white might potentially do damage to us. And if you take too much action without calming down the neurological system so that you can see reality clearly, what ends up happening is that you will be taking actions rooted in a fear response, feeding the wolf of hate over what is really just a delusion. There's so much of that going on in the world, and I'm sure if you think about it, you can find a, an example from your own life. I, I often uh, tend to get really startled very easily. This is something that happened uh, to me just the other day. I, have, uh, I, I really enjoy fruit trees. I like them a lot, and I really get excited when the flowers come out and then uh, I, when the flowers come out, I like to go and check on the trees and kind of say hello to the trees. I don't know if they could hear me, but it makes me happy. So uh, I planted a starfruit tree early, a few months ago, and there were, there were I noticed yesterday that there were a lot of flowers on the starfruit tree. So I went out to check out the flowers on the starfruit tree, and it was a wonderful sunny day with a very calm breeze and i was checking out the flowers and holding the flowers up and looking very closely down at the flowers and of course i felt very safe and secure in my own you know garden and engaging with the beautiful flowers of the starfruit tree then very quickly and very close by to where my hand was there were very large reptilian eyes and there was the appearance that i suddenly Uh, saw. Uh, I I didn't even look more closely than that, but I immediately screamed and took a few steps back. And I guess it was so dramatic. So um, there were people that had come to collect the garbage. And so the man that came to collect the garbage, he came over and said, ma'am, are you okay? Is everything all right? And I said, oh, I'm fine. It was, um, there's just a, um, a, a lizard in the tree. It was actually a baby iguana that was, I don't know, a couple of inches big. And I, 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 should, I don't have any problem with baby iguanas or even regular iguanas. I actually think they're like beautiful, kind of like mini dragons, and I really appreciate them. However, to be suddenly so close to one of these triggered my fight, flight, or freeze response. And I was able to talk myself down after recognizing that a small iguana posed no threat to me. And I was able to take appropriate action, which was just to leave the creature alone and let it hang out on the star fruit tree. But if it starts eating my flowers, I don't know, I'm gonna have to go and find that little iguana and we'll have a conversation. So in this way, I wanna illustrate what's going on inside the brain. Two, trigger the fight, flight, or freeze response inside the brain. There's a center inside the brain called the amygdala, which you probably heard of before. And the amygdala is kind of like the warning center for the brain. So when your amygdala sees reptilian eyes, or to use the classic yoga analogy that I went over before, sees a coil, it immediately sounds the alarm bells. Here we go, danger ahead, run for your life, danger, danger. And then your heartbeat accelerates, your, all the, you know, all of the systems of the body start to go into, you know, the fight or flight mode. And yeah, and so you might even let out a scream. (gasps) Or uh, you know, uh, a drawing in of the breath, and there's a sense of fear. It's real. <clears throat> now, here's the interesting thing about the amygdala. The amygdala, when it experiences these interactions, these moments like that, it lays down <coughs> through imagery. It lays down through imagery, not through words. And so this is important, OK? Not through words. It lays down through imagery. <coughs> oh, sorry. Um, <clears throat> it lays down through imagery in what's called implicit memory. And when it lays down through implicit memory, this means that your body will remember through images. And when memory is happening in images, this goes into the place that's called implicit memory. And this is memory that's stored in your body. <clears throat> Memory that's stored in your body is very closely linked to the subconscious mind. And when memory is stored in the subconscious mind, it is a fast-reacting state, and it's something that is very sort of in a knee-jerk kind of reaction pattern. It's something that you remember without consciously remembering that you remember it. I'm gonna say that again because that was a little confusing. It's something that you remember without consciously remembering that you remember it. You're not aware that you remember it. Implicit memory is stored in the subconscious mind and also deeply in the body. And the amygdala is responsible for laying down implicit memory. Unfortunately, because the amygdala is often on kind of high alert, what happens is that when you experience these kind of you know, uh, dangerous moments, even if they're harmless, dangerous moments, that experience, by the time you realize it wasn't a danger, has already laid down an implicit memory that makes it more likely that the next time you encounter such an experience, you will react with the same state of reactivity. There's another center inside your brain, which is very close to the amygdala. However, it's a little bit slower. This area, if I'm remembering correctly, is called the hippocampus. And this area inside of the brain is responsible for explicit memory. An explicit memory is memory that you are conscious of, you're aware of, and you can think clearly about. Now these memories are both visual, But most importantly, they're also verbal. So their memories and their thoughts and their consciousness you can think about. So the hippocampus and the amygdala, they work in tandem to each other. When you see that rose reptilian eyes or you see that coiled rope, the amygdala fires up the fight, flight, or freeze response. And the hippocampus says, hey, wait a minute. I know you just fired up and everything, but... I have other images filed away. they are reptilian eyes, and I don't think that it's actually a dinosaur, and I don't think it's an alien. This seems to be a harmless little iguana. No danger to you. And then the hippocampus says, I know it looked like a snake, but what are the likelihood that a dangerous cobra is on you know, a country path? Probably very low, so let's take a closer look. That looks like a rope to me. It's just a rope you can calm down. All right, so the hippocampus says these sorts of things. The more you practice yoga, the stronger your self-awareness becomes, the stronger your ability to observe the state of reactivity that might be present within your body and mind, and then quietly choose not to allow that state of reactivity to determine your actions. In other words, the higher, the sort of higher, more evolved considering consciousness gets emphasized as you continue to practice yoga. As you continue to practice yoga, you're building that ekatatva state, that concentrated mind, which is able to register the triggers of threats while not necessarily feeding the reactive pattern that would make the reactivity increase over time. And when we talk about patterning or rewiring the mind, what we're talking about in the yoga practice is learning how to lay the foundations for more evolution of consciousness. See, when you're happy, when you're a happy individual, when you are a relaxed, calm individual, when the resting state, that mirror of your life, reflects back to you, a calm, quiet, happy existence, The types of decisions that you take are necessarily more empathetic towards others, more compassionate towards others. You can take decisions based on long-term impacts of your actions and the actions of those around you. Rather than when the resting state of your life and your consciousness is built on that fight, flight, or freeze response, then the types of decisions that you take are rooted in scarcity and short-term thinking. And it's very hard to consider the happiness of others when you're miserable yourself. So the great gift of the yoga practice is to give you the power. The fulcrum point of this practice is to give you the power to change the way you think about yourself, to change the way you inhabit your body, so that you can literally liberate your minds and your consciousness and continue the work of evolution. So we can raise our vibration, and you could say, continue the work that is thousands and thousands and thousands of centuries and hundreds of millions of years in the works, which is, you know, the awakening of our consciousness. Now, if we have some questions, we can take a little bit of time to answer any questions that may have come up for you during this talk, if you want to ask any questions, you're welcome to type those into the chat and we'll take a few questions for today's session. Any questions so far? No questions yet, so I hope it wasn't too boring everyone. (laughs) I'll give you a moment if I can see anybody typing. One of the questions that usually comes up is, how can how come it feels like all of the bad stuff feels good and all of the good stuff feels so hard? Well, that usually means that we're up against patterning. So whenever we have, An existing pattern, when we try to turn away from that pattern, it really feels like we're leaving what's natural and moving into what's unnatural. It's a little bit like the first time that you eat kale. It somehow tastes a little bit weird, but then after you eat it a few more times and maybe you don't eat as many french fries and you eat a little bit more kale, then suddenly kale can taste really good. I remember the first time that kale tasted really amazing to me, and I felt like that was a sign that I'd done some pretty good work on changing my lifestyle. <laughs> so one of the questions that just came up is, so we need both aspects. Thank you for asking that. So it's common for people to say, okay, well, I never want to experience the wolf of hate. I only want to experience the wolf of love. So my purpose is to eradicate this one and only have that one. That's not really, that's not really the purpose. The purpose is to have both systems in balance while understanding that it's really the calm and connect space or the wolf of love which wants to dominate. That's the state that wants to be kind of your resting state of consciousness. But you do want to have the ability of the warning system to come online when it's needed. You wanna have the ability of that warning system to be there if there is real danger that's presented. And the key is to be able to identify what is real danger. Here's an example. If you find yourself in the middle of an open plain and a gigantic tornado starts to form, please let your amygdala run wild and let the fight, flight, or freeze response really encourage you to run for shelter. It can save your life. That's why the amygdala pattern is so powerful or that fight, flight, or freeze response is so powerful. In critical moments, it can save your life and it has saved the life of thousands of generations of human beings before us. And you could say that we are evolutionary, in terms of an evolutionary perspective or paradigm, that we are programmed to be hypersensitive to potential things that go wrong. A a good example, and we're we're trying to change that a little bit, instead of being hypersensitive to things that go wrong, we're trying to learn now and unlearn that kind of evolutionary pattern and be hypersensitive to things that are going well to things that are happening that are good so that that can be our predominant feeling and not let that wolf of hate, which is the fight, flight, or freeze response, go wild. If you're unable to gain control over the reactivity of the fight, flight, or freeze response, this is often referred to as an emotional hijack or an amygdala hijack. When that state seems to hijack your life, and make it, you incapable to take good decisions or to carry on with you know your life in a good space. So if that's happening, then we want to do some yoga. We want to do some mindfulness practice. We want to learn how to talk ourselves down off of that heightened state of arousal so we can calm the nervous system and just kind of rest into a space where we are more appropriately identify What is an actual threat and what is a perceived threat? What is a pattern of threat versus what is an actual threat. And then we're more, we're just more balanced, all right? So someone has asked a question that I'm talking about raising frequency and vibration of consciousness. What does that mean in my view, okay? Good question, what is consciousness? What is vibration, right, like what is all that? So let's talk about this from a purely scientific perspective. The brain, you know, this thing up here thinking it's thoughts, it emits a frequency. That frequency can be measured. And that frequency is most often in the resting state of the brain, which is called the beta frequency. The beta frequency is what happens when the brain is just in its kind of default mode, when we're thinking about the future and ruminating on the past and rehashing the same old thoughts and going through a repetitive cycle, it's just going over and over again. That's what we could call the beta frequency. And when we're talking about consciousness and evolution, the first thing that I like to think about is being able to shift out of the beta frequency into at least the alpha state, where the brain waves are a little bit slower, there's more space between the thoughts, and even having the potential to experience brainwave states like the gamma state. And the gamma state, this is when you're experiencing kind of holism in the brain where multiple bodies and systems of neurons are firing in harmony and in synchronicity with each other in a way that it, you experience a kind of a deep state of, of equanimity and a deep state of peace. And so when we're, we're talking about that as, as a real lived change in your brainwave state. Not only in moments, but what is evolution then? So yes, we can have a peak experience, Oh, we have tucked the alpha state for a few breaths, or we've gone into gamma state for a few breaths. Evolution, to me, is the idea that we spend that we consciously train the mind, and the, the the brain, and the body, and our being to spend more time out of the beta frequency into higher, literally higher frequencies of thought and thereby change the space around us you know if we're thinking about the future and ruminating on the past that has a frequency and an energy that happens in the brain but there's also a currency or a current you could say that's emitted from the heart and when your heart is exposed over and over to the hormones of stress there you know the frequency of the heart changes which you can measure by the heartbeat and if the heartbeat's very fast and erratic or is too rigid, there, there are a lot of uh, you know, studies that can actually document the, the, the impact that stress has on the heart. So when we're able to maintain a more peaceful and harmonious state, then the vibration that's emitted and, being, and, and is measurable through our heartbeat changes. In other words, the energy system that we are, physical body, sure, but the energy that's around us, when we're able to embody a state of, of peace and harmony more often, then we're essentially evolving. And that evolution is the evolution of consciousness. And this, and this really is what yoga is about. So we have a, a viewer here whose daughter's listening to the talk. And her 12, so hi, thanks for tuning in, yeah? And her daughter says that she's afraid of spiders. And she and she just, as soon as she sees a spider, she screams and runs away. And and she wants to know what she can do about that. Well, I really feel you on that, you know? You see, I really get it. Like, I, I'm not a huge fan of smalling, small crawling um, critters and creatures. I mean, they can be there, but if I don't really... Uh, Like to be too close to them either. So I really feel you on that. Now, that being said, how can you manage your response to the situation? Because this is super important. Each time you see a spider and you scream and you run away, you are strengthening the amygdala pattern of fast response to a perceived threat. So you are going to consciously train the higher, more evolved centers of the brain. And I want you to come up with a physical response that would embody the scream, but is not the scream. So in this way, you can break the circuit. So you already have a pattern. See the spider, ah, run away. Come up with a new response that is physical, so you're going to break the circuit, and you can practice it. So something you could do, and this is, you could find, I want you to find what works for you, but you want to break the pattern. Do you see the spider? Everything in you is, is already screaming, and you may find yourself about to scream, and then I want you to see if you can just take a very deep, long inhale, okay? So, and hold the inhalation for a count of five. One, two, three, four, five. and then exhale for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And at that moment, you've broken the cycle. Then you could still calmly choose to walk away from that spider. You don't need to hang out with the thing and become friends or invite into your bedroom or anything like that. But what I would suggest you do is find a way so that you can train yourself to be empowered. You can feel, wow, I am not a victim to my emotional responses. I can choose and I can change how I respond in that circumstance. And here's what's so cool, you're so young and if you learn this now, you can do this not only to spiders, but to anything that triggers that state of fear. You can do this in any moment. So remember, so here's what it is, that perceived threat, little spiders there, you're about to scream, maybe you notice that you you take the breath in, you're about to scream, hold your breath in. And count to five. One, two, three, four, five. Then exhale, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And that is a circuit breaker that can break the reactive pattern in your mind. And then see what happens. Now you could choose at that moment to start to pattern the cells of the hippocampus, that part of your brain that builds explicit memory and you could choose to talk to yourself. It's just a spider. It's not a dangerous one. I can see it's not a poisonous one. What could help you strengthen the cells of the hippocampus, which are the more evolved cells, is to actually study which spiders are are dangerous and which are not. There are only a few that are kind of poisonous you wanna watch out for, right? So you wanna, and then you'll know, you'll be able to take a breath and calm down and see, oh, this is a harmless little creature. Second thing that I'll tell you about spiders, okay? If you live in a place with mosquitoes, and I live in Florida and we have lots of mosquitoes here in Florida and they fly around and then they land on you and then they bite you and then you itch at the place where they've bitten you for a long time and it's annoying. "Mm," You get a mosquito. So the spiders, they eat the mosquitoes. So I have actually gone through a very similar process with spiders. I used to really not like them. I used to also scream when the spider was there, and then I tried that circuit breaker that I just shared with you. And then number two, I always say to myself whenever I see a spider, thank you for being there, Mr. Spider, or Miss Spider, or just non-gendered spider that's there. I really appreciate that you're there, my friend the spider, because you're going to eat mosquitoes. And the more mosquitoes that you eat, the less mosquitoes that are gonna bite me and my family. So spider, hey, my friend, the spider, you and me were friends. You could be there. Please be very hungry and eat lots of mosquitoes for me. Bye. And then I would probably walk away from the spider. So I hope that helps a little bit. Send me a message, let me know how it goes next time you see a spider. See if you could become friends. So now we have a question. What is a compassionate reaction to people who are in hate? And this is extremely variable and difficult. Just the fact that you're asking that question shows that you're on a compassionate path yourself. The first thing is to always check in with yourself, right? So we are we often tend to rally our troops and try to save others, you know. Oh, this person's suffering. They shouldn't do this. Let me try to fix them. The first thing to do in any difficult situation is to always check in with yourself. Am I triggered? you know, am I disturbed? Have I lost my own emotional balance? Because if that's the case, I would recommend you don't engage, and don't engage, period, you know? Um, the second thing uh, to think about is if you check in and you're like, oh, I'm actually, like, I'm actually not bothered, I, I, you know? So when, if you're not triggered, if you're not irritated at that system, if your amygdala is not fired, if you're not registering that this is a perceived harm that you need to remove, then you will be in the space of calm and connect. So if you're in the space of calm and connect, empathy, 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 that's the appropriate response. If you're triggered, and I feel like this happens a lot, we we see someone who's what we would label as in a state of hate, and it's really just someone that we find annoying. We're like, oh, this annoying person. Let me try to fix that annoying person and tell them what they should do and what they're doing wrong and all this sort of stuff. When the reality is that that being, for whatever reason, has triggered our amygdala response, our fight, flight, or freeze response. We are no longer in the common connect space. We are triggered. This happens online all the time, you know, in kind of uh, like, you, 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 I mean, everybody, you can imagine what's going on online. You see something that's irritating and then you type in, you, you you know, before you even think about it, you're typing into the comment thread about why that's not good. Hey, don't do that. That's bad. And all this kind of stuff. And, you know, you're, you're, you're coming in and maybe someone even calls you a hater. Hey, why are you a hater? I'm not a hater. I'm just trying to help out in the world. You, know, so you can get into a whole, you know, online craziness. I feel that the online space can sometimes accelerate uh, the fight flight or freeze response and that it's hard in the online space to move into the common connect space because what often happens in 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 terms of actually triggering the common connect space is we need we need visual cues like we need to be able to read body posture we need to be able to hear tone of voice we need to be able to hear to, to, to get sensitivity about facial expressions and we need to, just to kind of be really present with one another to really get that calm and connect. But the amygdala doesn't need that to get triggered. So we can, you know, we can read a, a negative comment somewhere that, that, that someone left and we're immediately in, a, you know, in an amygdala response. So what can you do, again, just to review? What is the appropriate response to someone who's in a state of hate, who's, whose amygdala is, you know, is on full force, who's out there in the world, interacting in that space? Number one, check in with yourself. If you are triggered, and your nervous system has gone up to here, your state of arousal is up here, don't engage. You've got to come back to your own state. You now need to take care of your emotions. If every time you interact with that person, your blood starts to boil and you're up to here, you're gonna need to do so much work in order to interact with that person to not go up here. As soon as you're up here, you have to disengage. The problem is that when you're up here, everything in you says, engage. So hard to disengage, right? Now, if you check in and you realize, oh, this being is suffering, then you, all, all, you will already be in the appropriate response, which is a state of compassion, a state of empathy, a state of, of true caring, where you're looking at this being. And, you know, with the same cares, you would look at a wounded animal, you know, you walk on the side of the street and if you see a dog with a broken leg, you know, you don't need to, you, you don't sit there and say, well, that dog deserved it. You know, you don't sit there and say, well, good for you. You, you know, you, you're you a nasty dog anyway. It serves you right. You were a hateful little creature. No, we wouldn't do that. Even the dog that was biting the whole neighborhood, if you saw that that dog had a broken leg, you know, I mean, assuming you like dogs, I love dogs, so it's easy for me to think about this, you know, and then we would see the, the animal with the broken leg and immediately, oh, I'm so sorry, being, what can I do to help you? You know, I'm scoop the animal up and bring it to the vet or all the appropriate you know, animal services or, or, or take some action rooted in compassion. If you're truly in a space of calm and connect, the appropriate action will be evident to you. If you're in a heightened state of arousal, then what actions will be evident and apparent to you are actions that will further fuel the fight, flight, or freeze response. So this is why I recommend not to engage if you yourself are triggered. If you are in a calm and connect space, then that's the place you'll be most effective in the world. Maybe we take one more question? What advice do I have for people who are terrified of public speaking? What advice do I have for people that are terrified of a speech? Well, here's the thing of anything that you're truly afraid of, is there's always a trade-off between risk and reward. If you're a yoga practitioner, I want you to think about some yoga asana that used to terrify you. Everybody's gonna have different tools that they use to work with fear. However, what is universal is that we have all have some yoga pose that we've all feared. Some yoga pose that just to think about it, you thought, oh, oh, please, no, no, I don't want to do that one. Oh, please keep that yoga pose for yourself. I have some that I think about now that I used to think were fun. And now I think, oh, oh, I really don't like this. Please, I get scared even thinking about doing this pose. So what did you do to get over that fear? What did you do? You showed up every day and you tried it and you ask for help in moments where there was a need for help. So for example, when I'm scared in a yoga posture, I usually ask for my teacher to help me or for me to get a spot from someone I trust. And then having someone there with me that I trust brings my fear level down a little bit. Number two, I break the yoga pose down into small digestible bits so I don't need to think about the totality so that I just say, I'm just going to do this little bit for today. And if that was good, then I'll do a little more tomorrow. If not, I'm just going to stick with this little bit. So I break it down into small little bits that over time paint the picture of the whole posture. Then of course, I'm employing all of that bottom up regulation that I spoke about before using the breath using the tool of the body, using the tools of asana itself to create that space of calm and connect. Last thing that I can recommend in moments of fear is to do a little bit of mental rehearsing. So mental rehearsing helps you kind of sensitize yourself for the moment. And it's something if you've never done in a yoga pose can be really helpful too. So if you mentally rehearse the situation, it takes the edge off of it and it acclimates you more for kind of the, you know, the, the, the actuality of the experience. And lastly, specifically for this one, I use the analogy of a yoga pose that, or yoga asana that you might have feared and then you've gotten over by putting in the tools of the practice. Now in the yoga, the yoga practice, you're coming to a class so I would probably recommend that if public speaking is a goal of yours and you have a lot of fear, sign up for a class that, is, that will teach you the foundations of whatever it is you want to learn. Start with the basics and go on or get a mentor that's going to work with you once a week. And this will help you have a teacher so that you can have a path to follow rather than just going it on your own. You know, we think that we can learn anything these days from YouTube. I'm nothing against YouTube. I love YouTube. But uh, it really helps when you have a direct personal connection with someone that can really, really guide you. So those are the tools that I can recommend. Okay, so this is going to conclude our talk for today. And thank you. I want to thank you for spending this time with me, for opening your hearts to uh, this uh, teaching and this talk. And please leave me some comments and let me know if you want to continue this uh, conversations live like this. And otherwise, I look forward to seeing you again really soon. So thanks, everyone. Lots of love, Namaste. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Yoga Inspiration Show. Remember, you can always practice with me online at Omstars.com. www.omstars.omstars.com. And if you want to check out some of my books, anywhere that books are sold, I would be so grateful. Of course, you can find me on social media at Kino Yoga, Instagram, YouTube, or big places to check it out. I really appreciate your support. It means everything to me. If you stay listening and stay practicing, it keeps me inspired. So let's do it. Let's keep practicing and I'll see you next week. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So, you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat, and I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.